Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com earnings right now. NetSuite.com earnings. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, let's check in with Gina Martin-Adams because we just got through uh, and we're getting through a week of uh, big, big-time earnings here. Uh, Gina Martin-Adams joins us. She's the uh, uh, chief U.S. Interest, uh, chief strategist for uh, calling all the markets, uh, equity markets for Bloomberg Intelligence. Gina, um, again, uh, you know, another a, a great first half of the year, a good July here for these markets. Uh, we're getting into earnings. As you step back a little bit, how do you think about these markets here? Yeah, I think the markets have largely followed along with earnings trends, believe it or not, um, because when you exclude the energy sector from the S&P 500, it's important to keep in mind that energy is an input cost for most of the rest of the sector. So we want to exclude the energy sector. And what we find is earnings trends are actually improving pretty materially for the rest of the groups in the index, at least relative to where they were last year. And that improvement has been pretty continuous throughout 2023. At the very least, earnings are much less bad than anyone has <laughs> anticipated for the groups that are outside of energy. And that seems to be powering a pretty significant market advance. And is that why, to your point, powering this advance that we've seen, were investors already looking ahead and seeing that improvement, especially when you were talking about energy masking those improvements? I know that when you're looking at the earnings revision momentum data on your team, Michael Casper was talking to me about how, particularly when you're looking at discretionary and industrials, those were the two key groups that were leading those growth downturns at the beginning of last year, but now those are starting to be marked up higher. So more of those cyclically oriented corners of the market is did investors already foresee that? And that's why we, in part, saw that big rebound at the beginning of this year. Yeah, I think what happened was by the end of last year, investors were largely pricing a pretty significant recession in earnings to continue throughout 2023. So remember, X Energy, we did see earnings start to crash really throughout 2022. By the end of last year, really all hope for any kind of rebound was gone. And investors were only anticipating that earnings would get worse. But what we've seen so far this year is the turn in inflation has been very, very consequential for turning around the sentiment towards select industries and most of the X energy industries in the S&P 500. Last year, remember, when inflation was accelerating very rapidly, and producer prices in particular were accelerating extremely quickly relative to consumer prices, most US companies were experiencing some degree of inflation distress. At the same time, it was very clear that tech and tech-like industries were overhired 
had too many employees relative to the pace of sales growth that they were experiencing and needed to right size the ships. So we saw that occurred late last year. Early this year, we started to see inflation pressures ease. And the combination of those two things has resulted in much better performance across the space. Some of the segments that, as you as you point out, are very sensitive to inflation, like some of the consumer discretionaries, consumer staples, industrials, communications, even healthcare companies, have experienced a great degree of inflation reprieve. Uh, the result of that is likely to show up in better earnings growth into later this year and into 2024. And I think that is starting to get embedded in prices. I would not say that this has been anticipated. I think that most investors are still quite skeptical with respect to the macro outlook. Most investors are looking at top line growth and very concerned about where the economy is headed. But what's happening beneath the top line is very, very important and consequential to earnings trends. And I think that's been the lesson of 2023. Hey, Gina, I'm just looking at the S&P 500 and off of the October low, we're up almost 28%. Yeah. Is that a bull market that I just haven't been talking about? Yeah, it's a great point. Uh, we actually did some work on this this week. That gain from the October low to date retraces 76, more than 76% of the peak to trough decline. When we look back in history and we look at all bear markets, that is all times the S&P 500 has dropped at least 20%. We look at those points in time in which the S&P started to recover and a 76% retracement of the peak to trough decline after every single bear market since history in, in U.S. history since 1929 suggests that that critical level never gets broken again, right? What we actually find is over the next year, a bull market continues. It is a critical marker for a continuation of the bull market. You just don't see a 76% retracement and then a retest of new lows or retest of those former, former lows within the next year. So, uh, you know, our work would suggest very consistently the, the degree to which we've rebounded is a very bullish marker, at least historically. Now, you know, every time there's a chance that this time is different. The one thing that is different this time is the lack of recovery in small caps. The other thing we've never seen in U.S. history is small caps recover so little mm. of their peak to trough decline while large caps are recovering so much. So we want to watch small caps really carefully because I do think that that is an area of risk in the market. If we can't get some participation from small caps, we can't get that positive signal out of small caps continuing to churn a bit higher, we could be in for a rocky road ahead. And Gina, you've written about recently about how this sort of gloom coming into this year about the economy is really a distraction when you're thinking about from the point of view from an equity perspective and what it means when you're looking more towards what corporate America is signaling on the profit outlook. Why do you think this typically continues to happen when you look back at history and potentially even just be a losing strategy for investors if they're obsessing over what the timing could be on a recession when all of a sudden, yeah. when especially like you were talking about, energy excluded from S&P 500 outlook really improving moving forward? Yeah, I, and this is, I think, is so key for investors to really understand. And we were reminded of this all year this year. The economy and the earnings stream are not the same thing. And stocks trade on earnings and the outlook for earnings very clearly. Uh, we've seen earnings growth come in much better than anticipated. Uh, like I said, less bad than anticipated. But frankly, earnings have improved considerably well relative to what was priced in the equity market late last year. And that is really important because the economists are still thinking, well, we are going to, we may scathe by without falling into recession, but there's still a lot of chatter about the macro outlook. 
many people are still really hand wringing their hands over what's going to happen in the economy. And that really kind of misses the point because there just is there are commonalities, certainly. And if the economy does fall into recession, there will be pain points in the earnings stream that emerge. But for now, what is important is that margins appear to have formed a bottom. They're starting to improve a little bit here. We seem to be stable enough in the economy to create some stability in the top line revenue. Uh, for the index, we're always on guard for something to change. But those earnings are what really drive stock prices. And I think this is so important. Um, you know, the, the, even the percentage share of industries impact on the equity market is so very different than the percentage share of those industries impact on the economy at large, that trying to use the economy as a forecasting tool for the market proves to be a really dicey business. All right, Gina, it looks like we're back in the business, uh, focusing on earnings, maybe a little bit less so on the Fed, and that's a good thing, because uh, maybe we get uh, some earnings momentum here. Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us, uh, giving us a great overview of the market as we kind of pour through these earnings, uh, you know, really kicking in uh, this week in size, including today, and then well through the next couple of weeks. So maybe a little bit better than expected outlook on earnings, just what to see how it comes in. And you brought up the Dow Jones Industrial Average actually heading in today. It had been up for eight consecutive sessions. So that was as long as winning streak in about four years. And so heading for potentially a ninth consecutive session. Nice. Also looking at more of those cyclical oriented corners of the market. Holding yeah, up. I'd like to see that. And as Gina su suggested, that's a good thing to see a little bit of a broadening out from the, the tech. So that's good. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about earnings here, and let's talk about healthcare earnings. Uh, we can do that with Ann Hines. She's from Mizuho Americas. Uh, she's a managing director and senior healthcare services equity analyst there. And thanks so much for joining us via the phone here. Healthcare services Give us a sense about how this group has traded over the last couple of years. Just give us a sense how investors and how you position the healthcare services providers uh, out there to investors. 
Sure. Um, I would say this group has traded. It's a tale of two groups, uh, mainly managed care and hospitals. And it's really based on utilization. Remember, during COVID, baseline utilization, and that's what everyone refers to healthcare utilization before COVID, was really below pre-pandemic levels. And if you even go even further, if you do it by payer mix, whether it's commercial, whether it's Medicare Advantage, whether it's, whether it's Medicaid, definitely Medicare Advantage and Medicaid um, beneficiaries were not seeking care. They didn't want to go to the hospital. Now we get to 2023, and it's probably the first year since the pandemic that trends are normal. People are going back to get um, to the doctors. They're going back to get elective procedures, hip procedures, things that they really postponed during the pandemic. That's really good for any provider. So HGA, um, big hospital companies, Tenet Universal, surgery partners, um, you know, I don't care about MedTech, but MedTech companies, any, any company that provides healthcare. It's been a little bit more difficult for managed care companies this earnings season, especially managed care companies that have exposure to Medicare because it's the Medicare beneficiaries. They tend to use the system more and they were the ones that really didn't want to go into the system um, during the pandemic. So we're seeing increased utilization, which is really hurting the stocks year to date, whereas you have the hospital providers that are really outperforming. And to your point, I mean, looking at stocks like Humana, ticker symbol HUM, that's down about 13% year to date. Mm -hmm. Also looking over at what's happening with UNH, also down about 5%. But the other side of that, HCA Healthcare, that's up about 20%. And then Tenet Healthcare, looking at that ticker symbol, THC, up almost 60%. How much longer do you think when we're looking at those types of stocks like Tenet and then also when it comes to HCA, how long and how much more room it could have for those stocks to keep moving higher? I would argue there is room to move higher for two reasons. One, earnings, and I like to refer to baseline earnings pre-pandemic ex-COVID, they're still hampered because of labor costs. So to put it in perspective, before the pandemic, HGA spent about $990 million on temporary labor. And at the height of the pandemic, the company has been 2.5 billion. That's a 12% EBITDA headwind, um, a headwind to EBITDA. And if you annualize last quarter, it's still at 2 billion. So it's very elevated. So there's a lot of drivers for upside for a company like HGA and Tenant because temporary labor is coming down slowly, but it's coming down. And then you also have this pent up demand utilization that's coming back to the system. And if you look at Medicare, they were, um, I would say you have probably a two-year um, window of people catching up with procedures that they didn't do during the pandemic. So as you talk to your institutional investor clients, uh, and what are the, the topics that come up the most? What do you find yourself explaining or, or you know, kind of discussing with your clients? Um, utilization. So it's all about healthcare utilization, but also pricing what managed care companies price into their bids for 2024 and did it capture this utilization. I think all the companies expected utilization to come back. I think they probably expected it to come back more over 2023, 2024, and 2025. And a reason for that is nursing is an issue. A lot of nurses left the field. It caused capacity constraints. And I think what we're seeing in 2023 is more capacity opening that people probably um, expected. So I would think that's the main thing. And to your question, how long can the hospitals run? And I would argue companies that have earnings upside, 
they usually go up and not down. So just so on the on the labor front, I mean, I, I granted, I mean, you just you think back to the pandemic and the, the conditions under which all the healthcare providers had to operate. I mean, they're just, you know, saints, every one of them. Uh, but as you mentioned, a high toll on turnover in that space. So is this an industry that just chronically is short on nurses and maybe to a lesser extent doctors? Is that something that's kind of a chronic issue for the industry? To a degree, but what happened during the pandemic is that you have what we have a permanent nurse, a permanent nurse that always works full time. And then you have nurses who like to travel. They get paid a little bit, um, a little bit more an hour, but they tend to travel. And what happened during the pandemic, there was such a high demand. You had this phenomena that permanent nurses went temporary to get the higher um, hourly wage. Like to put it in perspective, a nurse might make $50 an hour, but at the height of pandemic, they were making $250 an hour. I think what we're seeing is that some of these nurses that left their permanent position, they're coming back to full-time positions in the workforce. But there's also um, a part that the average age of the nurse is about 50. Maybe that nurse is working less hours, less shifts. Um, So it's a combination of both. And to Paul's point, because he was asking about some of the top questions you're getting, what about the top concerns among some of your clients as far as what this could mean as far as the outlook moving forward? I would say the top concerns I get is on the managed care sector because they have a few headwinds coming up. There is some changes to Medicare reimbursement that would impact Medicare Advantage plans. And the big thing is also Medicaid redeterminations because I'm sure you know the Medicaid um, rolls swell during the pandemic because of the public health emergency. States were not allowed to redetermine anyone on Medicaid. And that ended in April. And over the next 12 to 14 months, states will be rolling um, beneficiaries off. And that just causes a lot of uncertainty with numbers because a lot of these companies didn't benefit benefit from the public health emergency. All right. Uh, and top picks. What are you uh, talking to your clients about? What do you like right here? Uh, going forward? So I would say a top pick on the managed care side are Cigna and Elevance. And Cigna for two reasons. One, they don't have a lot of Medicare Advantage exposure. So a lot of the changes to reimbursement is not going to impact them. And they also don't have a lot of Medicaid redetermined exposure. So the two biggest worries in the managed care sector, they don't have a lot of exposure to. There is some risk with PBM legislation, but I would argue that's already based in valuation at about um, 10 times 2024 earnings. Um, I also like, I still like HGA just because despite the run, there is a lot of upside to earnings in my opinion for 2023 and 2024. And when you're talking about legislation, are there anything in particular coming up on Capitol Hill that you think investors should keep their eyes on when it comes to potential maybe regulations that could affect some of these companies? Yes, so um, Congress wants to pass PBM legislation that has that will result in increased regulatory um, scrutiny on the PBM. So companies with the biggest exposure would be United Healthcare, CVS, and Cigna. That's pretty well known, but um, the question is if, if there's going to be a legislative vehicle. I believe there will be a legislative vehicle in December, and I'm also a believer that this has been a headline risk for a long time, and I think any type of legislation that passes will have um, not going to affect to 2026, which will allow these PBMs to change language in their contracts. So 
when all is said and done, I actually don't think it will have a meaningful impact on EPS and it should remove a headline risk. And we should get more details on that, but not until December. But that's the major thing, because typically in healthcare, when there's a balance of power in Washington, not a lot of healthcare legislation is passed. And just about 30 seconds here, drug distributors, you're neutral on that group. Why? I'm really valuation. They've had a great run for a long time, and um, they're reaching their 10-year highs. Earnings visibility is very good. Um, but I do think it's a crowded sector. It's a sector that a lot of journalists went in over the past couple of years when there was a lot of uncertainty in the market. But they are great companies, and it's more valuation than anything. All right, Anne. Thanks so much for giving us some of your time. Anne Hines, she's Senior Healthcare Services Equity Analyst. She's a Managing Director over at Mizuho. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We want to switch things up for our next segment and do an energy outlook. And I'm excited because we do have in studio here Jonathan Maxwell, who's CEO at Sustainable Development Capital, who's joining us to discuss the outlook on oil and the renewable energy markets, particularly with the growth of Tesla this year and the emergence of EVs. But before I actually get into that, I have to ask you about Ukraine. And we're seeing wheat prices soaring today. It's actually their three-day gain is more than 10% after the U.S. did warn that Russia has laid mines at Ukrainian grain ports. Now, you've written a book recently tied to Ukraine. What's your take on this and how does this mean and what does it mean for the energy and commodity space? I think it has a huge um, story around resources and conflict over resources. of, of, Ukraine was really the conduit prior to the Russia-Ukraine crisis for, for Russia's exports of oil and of, uh, sorry of gas into Europe. It's pi- it was piped through Ukraine. Europe needed to get 40% of its gas from Russia. That's over. Yep. We saw energy prices skyrocket last year. We saw energy sec- in Europe. We saw energy security become front-page news in a way that it never had before. So. The link between Ukraine and resources was the big headline last year was energy. Now, there was a deal struck which kept grain exports and other really critical resource exports going out of Ukraine. But Ukraine is one of the most important resource stories in the world. After America became energy independent in 2019, really this, com- this resource arena has shifted now into Eastern Europe. You know, Russia and Ukraine are really the nexus for the balancing demand around, or supply and demand around oil and gas uh, on the one hand and other resources like grain on the other. So what we're seeing is a conflict for, um, which is uh, partly driven by uh, conflict over resources, but also it's having a dramatic impact on pricing. All right, so at Sustainable Development Capital, you guys look at kind of, I guess, this challenge about being sustainable, being eco-friendly, a little bit differently. Talk to us about the types of investments you make there. What do you like to, where do you think you can add value? Right. Well, I, you know, one of the major responses that came up, tying it back to Russia, Ukraine, one of the major responses that happened last year is, given the fact that energy was being constrained in Europe, what should we do about it? So what? So there was a huge uh, response, build more energy, add more into the system, mostly renewable energy, until until it became clear how long that would take. 
and how much money that would take and the fact that that wasn't going to address energy security in the short term. In fact, there was an echo of the European Commissioner for Energy's response from the 2014 invasion, which was really important in Europe last year. They said for every, every unit of gas that we don't use is 2.6 units of gas we don't need to buy from Russia. So the implication yep. was actually we're wasting so much energy and about 70% of energy gets lost somewhere between getting extracted and used. All right, but if stop. we can that, stop that, that. That's the number I like. That's because yeah. I remember that from last time. Say that one more time slowly for... Yeah, so, so in the United States, the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory has uh, charts each year, produced every single year, that show how much energy gets lost from the point of extraction to end use. About 10% gets lost extracting and converting it. About 50% gets lost in heat because energy is generated typically in one place and used in a very different place, and they can't do anything with the heat. And then another 10% gets lost in transmission and distribution. This wow. is the basic fact of the way that we've done energy, centralized energy systems. Systems, not just in the US, but in the UK, Europe, everywhere. And that is the part of the problem that needs to be solved. Here we are trying to add more energy into the system, but the system's broken. It's unbelievably inefficient. And if we can generate energy close to or at the point it's needed and stop wasting so much at the point of use, 10, 20% plus is typically wasted at the point of use. That's one of the most important, largest sources of productivity, uh, economic gain, let alone carbon emission reductions available on Earth. So then what is the key to reducing energy waste to meet climate goals ultimately? So um, I think the first point is uh, generate energy where it's close to or at the point of use. So um, let's look at the big problems, right? Electricity is being greened, which is great, but it gets used mostly in a residential context. If you look at industry, 85% of industry is driven by fossil fuels, 98% of transport. So what can you do about that? You can generate the energy close to the point of use. So if you, even if you're using natural gas, capture the heat and use it for heat processing in industry. Um, if you can do that by recycling waste gases, we, um, on one of our funds, we own a huge recycling uh, uh, project up in uh, Indiana, Gary, Indiana, where we recycle flue gases and use that to power the steel mills. So these sorts of um, uh, solar on-site uh, solar on-site storage is a massive part of the solution. The second part is actually just stopping wasting so much inside of buildings, motors, controls, lighting. You know, these are uh, it's heating, ventilation, air conditioning, cooling as the warm weather heats up yep. the world. So these are the things that are going to make a tremendous difference and can be done quickly. It takes years to build a new renewable power system. We need to do as much of that as possible, but it takes months, maybe a couple of years to do any of the things that I'm discussing in terms of generating energy on site or indeed reducing demand for so it. So what, what what's a recent investment that you, your funds have made that you're very excited about? So uh, I was in upstate New York yesterday. We own uh, one of the largest district energy systems in the United States, and that provides energy on site to 120 customers in, in Rochester Business Park. We own an uh, investment um, in a company here in Manhattan, which is called Onyx Renewables, which does solar and storage nationwide. Um, and that produces on-site generation on people's rooftops, carports, or in the ground, but connected directly to buildings, producing low-carbon, low-cost energy solutions. Um, I mean, on the electric vehicle side, this is a huge opportunity. Electric vehicles, 
uh, around 80% efficient versus about 30% efficient. And for, so 80% efficient versus 30% efficient for internal combustion. Yeah. So how, the, how, do you, how do you define that? Like what's, what's efficient? Right. So if, if you track the energy, the primary energy coming out of a well, what they call well to wheel, okay. and you, you sort of you track the journey of the molecule yep. to exactly what survives through the engine. Okay. Right? I get see. Lost okay. Through the generation, transmission, etc. It's roughly 30% in an in internal combustion engine. What they call wind to wheel. That is taking the electricity out of a renewable power plant, and the electricity broadly survives to get into the car, and then that is then converted into power that actually goes along and moves this vehicle along. So uh, it's a it's very efficient. It's also, frankly, the pe yes, it will help reduce demand, hopefully, and displace fossil fuel use, but it also cuts pollution in town. So even even yeah. if you're not into the climate and you're not into ESG and you don't like greenwashing or green right. hushing then surely you don't want your kids to grow up in cities that were th that are three or four times the level considered safe by the World Health Organization, like my hometown of London, because of the cars, taxis, yep. and buses. So it's those sorts of things where you've got efficiency combined with better outcomes for people. I, I, we're having you back. The next time you're in New York, I know you said you're back here a lot. When you're back in New York, we're going to continue this conversation. Jonathan Maxwell, CEO, co-founder, Sustainable Development Capital. I like the capital part. Book out in the U.S. in December. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's head down to Washington, D.C. Joe Matthew, radio and TV host, Bloomberg's Sound On and Bloomberg's Balance of Power joins us. Uh, Joe, you and Anne-Marie Hordern interviewed Chris Christie on Balance of Power last night. Here's a clip of your discussion. At our nation's secrets hanging out at Mar-a-Lago and at his Bedminster Golf Club. Think about the risk that that puts our men and women in uniform and our intelligence officers at. That was a new, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. He's also a presidential hopeful for 2024. Joe, talk to us about kind of some of the highlights uh, from your discussion with uh, Mr. Christie. Well, we tried to take a different approach, as you might uh, have noticed, because every time I see Chris Christie or hear Chris Christie, 
in an interview, the entire thing is about Donald Trump. And of course, you have to ask him about the front runner. But we tried to be a little bit different here for our audience on Bloomberg and actually talk about a couple of issues. I've never heard him be asked about the economy, about inflation, his thoughts on Jay Powell, his thoughts on geopolitics, how he would handle uh, China, his thoughts on Taiwan, a lot of things that that we frankly learned for the first time in that conversation last evening. And we, we got to take a pretty deep dive with him uh, on a number of issues here. So, yeah, when it comes to Donald Trump, look, he's a former prosecutor. And his view is that we have already seen what, what could be the most damaging case against him, that cut that you just played. Uh, he's talking about the classified documents mm. case, and he sees that as the most damning legal action that uh, the president, former president is facing right now, even as we wait for yet another indictment likely to drop, according to Donald Trump, in the next few days. How do you think this shapes up for the race for the election, especially when you're looking at this latest poll from Reuters where it has Trump up uh, about 47 percent of support among Republicans? And then you look at DeSantis at about 19 percent and kind of what you think this could mean as far as from a sentiment perspective. Well, you know, first of all, I would just caution everybody to, to, to throw a little bit of salt at, you know, more than one grain at any national poll right now, because <laughs> You know, if I bring you back to where we were in the race in 2016 right now, you'd be asking me when Jeb Bush was going to move into the White House. Mm. Uh, you'd be asking me when Scott Walker might be doing the same thing. Donald Trump, I believe, was around 4% at that point. Now, we cannot argue with this remarkable lead, this powerful lead that Donald Trump has at the moment. You're asking the right question about number two, though. And we're watching Ron DeSantis attempt to relaunch, reset his campaign. He actually laid off some workers found himself spending too much money and hard to rationalize a polling uh, data set that's been dropping essentially since he announced officially that he was coming into the campaign. So Ron DeSantis is dealing with an identity issue right now. He's trying to go out there and do more mainstream media, talk to people other than those who agree with him. And it's really, frankly, unclear. Uh, he's got a massive apparatus and a lot of money, but it's unclear that he can catch up to Donald Trump at this stage of the race. It's going to require an event. And I'll remind everybody there's a big one next month, and that's the debate, the first Republican debate that'll be in Milwaukee that the RNC is running. And by the way, the aforementioned Chris Christie is among candidates who made the cut to go on that stage, but so far has not taken the pledge, as the RNC is asking everyone to support the eventual nominee. Because if you're Chris Christie, you can't say you're going to vote for Donald Trump if he does this again. Right. Interesting. All right. So, Joe, based upon uh, your discussions with Anne-Marie and, and, and the governor last night, what do you think Governor Christie views as maybe his strategy uh, going into this election? A lot of folks are just suggesting he's nothing more than someone to just beat up on Donald Trump. But what did you learn yes. last night? I'm, I'm glad you asked that. It's the first question that I asked him. You know, everyone knows that you're here to be that you're the guy who's here to punch Donald Trump in the nose rhetorically. That's your that's your brand. And many would argue, by the way, there would never have been a Donald Trump without Chris Christie. Remember, he was the tell it like it is candidate. Now he's facing somebody who actually became president uh, on that idea. But there needs to be more than that. And when I asked him about what is it that, you know, beyond anti-Trump, what is your brand? He said one word, truth. I'm the only guy up there who will tell you the truth. Now, when you put that against some of the policy positions that we discussed, you might actually have a package there that a voter could consider. But when you're looking at him between six and eight percent of the polls right now, he has yet to connect the dots with voters in that way. Have we heard from the Biden administration about Trump's legal woes right now? They're really careful to not talk about it. Right. They don't want anyone to think that there's any contact between the president and Merrick Garland at the DOJ, never mind the special counsel, these degrees of separation are really important to the White House here because they're being accused 
of weaponizing the Department of Justice. Even the Speaker of the House said that. The only reason it happened, he said, is because Donald Trump's uh, poll numbers are higher, which is a little bit ridiculous because this investigation has been going on for a lot longer than Donald Trump had this uh, this lead in the polls. Uh, so for the White House, you know what? They treat it just like they do the Fed. They defer. Joe, you're in Washington, D.C. You're based in D.C. You talk to everybody here. What is your sense at this early stage of what the Republican Party would like to see? How would they like to see things develop? Who would they like their nominee to be, do you think? Impossible to, to answer because yeah. it's such a, a, a splintered party right now, and that's really a challenge. Uh, if you're running the RNC, you're trying to figure this out exactly because 30 percent are just hard locked behind Donald Trump, even if he does shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, as he says, we're starting to believe him there that they will not budge. So now you're dealing with roughly 70 percent of the electorate. And the more candidates jump in this thing, they're splintering it along the way. I'm not sure anyone is resonating other than Donald Trump in a significant way that you could see them actually becoming the nominee yet. We have to get some debates under our belt. We need something to happen here. And I would also challenge the conventional wisdom on the idea of another indictment for Donald Trump. Well, that may help him in the near term raise money and, and lift his polls. We could be looking at a very different dynamic with him walking into a re-election cycle, if we call it that for him as a former president, uh, carrying four or five indictments. It would be historic, and there's no historical measure to how that might impact the electorate. And, and just from the Dem same question from the Democratic side, uh, is the Democratic Party united behind uh, President Biden <laughs> making another run here? You know, I, I, as much as it's going to be, um, yep. there's no clear alternative. And and while some have asked if, you know, the president should drop out here and, and bring in a younger Democrat, no one exactly is raising their hand for that right now. So I think as long as he wants to do this, it's probably his. But if you look at the poll yesterday uh, from Quinnipiac University, it found that nearly half, I believe it was 47 percent of voters from both parties would like to see somebody other than not only the names we're talking about, uh, Paul, but they want to see a third party candidate. And that brings us to this whole idea of the no labels uh, party. They held a big event in New Hampshire this week with Joe Manchin. Uh, and that's that's the one thing that upsets Democrats. When you ask them about a third party, they say that is the most surefire way to reelect Donald Trump. That is what would keep Joe Biden out of the White House. All right, Joe. Uh, great, great analysis, as always. Joe Matthew, uh, he is host of Bloomberg Sound On and Bloomberg's Balance of Power, Balance of Power on television, Sound On on radio. So Joe Matthew is our multimedia Washington, D.C. source. Uh, and he and Anne-Marie Hordern last evening spoke with uh, presidential candidate uh, Chris Christie, former governor of my home state, New Jersey. Um, so lots to talk about there. It's going to be a fascinating run into the 2024 election. It no, definitely no is. And then him calling out how those classified documents case is the worst of the Trump charges at yep. this point. Yeah, that, that's going to be interesting to see how that plays. I will have, obviously, full coverage going forward. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just Say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Just met Paul Sweeney here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We are streaming on YouTube. You can just go over to YouTube and just uh, search Bloomberg Global News, and that'll bring you right to the feed. In this hour, 
We are joined in studio with Barry Ritholtz. He's the host of Masters in Business, a little podcast he does uh, with the good folks at Bloomberg. He's also got a day job with Ritholtz uh, Wealth Management. Barry, thanks so much for joining us here. My, my pleasure. Always a blast to be here. All right, let's kick it off real quick here because one of the names that Charlie was just mentioning in that thing was uh, Netflix. After we, uh, the close last night, reported some numbers. Stock is off 9%. Uh, the revenue guidance missed here. So that's kind of the big issue. And it just kind of calls into question the whole profitability of the streaming business. And we want to bring in somebody who really knows his business well, Mark Douglas. He's a president and CEO of Mountain. He joins us via Zoom here. So, Mark, what did you take away from uh, what we heard from the company last night and what we saw in their results? Migration or building mode in terms of password sharing. The way I think of the password sharing um, it's like a revenue backlog for Netflix that they can tap into. I don't think they're likely pushing 100% on ending password sharing. Um, they have an incentive to do it slowly and then have like essentially this backlog. The ad business still has some effort to ramp up. But I think the fact that they miss revenue hit earnings is an indication not, um, that you're going to see increased earnings at Netflix because the new consumer the new consumers are paying that are coming off the password sharing they have no increased costs they have very little increased costs with the ad business that all of that revenue is going to go straight to the bottom line so so let's put some flesh on the bones what are netflix estimates of of how many households are sharing passwords and how many potential new subscribers does this uh lay out what sort of revenue bump could we say the i mean, i don't um offhand know the exact numbers. I know it's a very significant portion of the users that use Netflix, you know, are doing password sharing. I remember a few years ago, there was a meme when one of their shows went viral right before Christmas. And it was like, how did 50 million people watch that movie with only 10, you know, Netflix passwords? So I think, you know, everyone is sharing and Netflix is going to essentially do a migration over time from password sharing to fully paid subscriptions and do it now with ad supported likely being right in the mix, which generates even more revenue for them and thus more profit. I don't understand. I'm watching Drive to Survive in the den. My wife put something on in the bedroom and I get kicked out of Netflix, yet everybody else seems to be seems to be sharing uh, this. So, so how long do you think it'll take for them to migrate a substantial number of these people onto the platform as paying customers? I think they could do it in three months, but I think if I were them, I'd take three years and just always have this additional revenue stream. Um, it sounds like your household has been identified as one with <laughs> password sharing allowed. Top of the list, I would have made it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you look at this stock, ticker symbol NFLX, it's been up more than 100% over the past 12 months. If, to Paul's point, you look at it today, down 9%. This would be its worst percentage decline of this year and the worst since April of 2022. How much of this is also, it's had such a huge run. Would you expect it to see it pull back like this on a day like today after it's got its earnings results? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, mean, I think last year was an overreaction. And that, it, you know, the part of the reason they had such a big run up is because they fell off, the stock fell off a cliff. 9% is not falling off a cliff. It's a decline. And I, I honestly, I think you're going to see people buying into the stock. I personally am going to buy into the stock. I think it's an, I, I, I just expect 
this to start a new era of increased earnings at Netflix because of the profitability of the password sharing subscribers and the um, the advertise and the advertising business. So I, I think you're going to see you know this be a temporary blip, and then they start to to you see the stock price start to increase. What about other streaming platforms and those types of stocks? We're not going to have Disney's earnings results until August 9th, but obviously when you're thinking about some of its rivals, maybe Roku, what about those particular types of stocks? And are those potentially ones that you're buying or maybe selling? I think Netflix is kind of, kind of uniquely positioned. I think there is opportunity, obviously, with Disney Plus, but then you're also buying in the Disney parks and all these Disney right. films. And, and there's a lot of complexity and a lot of issues there. Netflix is best when they operate like a tech company and not a Hollywood studio. And so the password sharing, the advertising, these are things that they are really led out of Mountain View, you know, in the tech side of Netflix. And whenever they do that, they lead the industry in innovation and then start to lead the industry in terms of growth. And that's happening now. And that's I think that one statement is what I think makes Netflix, you know, uh, un like above their peers, so to mm -hmm. say. And, and why I like the company. Hey, Mark, you're one of the, the really thought leaders in the digital advertising space. Give us a sense of just how you think this streaming advertising business is going to play out yeah the the i think it's been very challenging there's lots of demand to advertise on netflix but they have to navigate do they have rights on all the shows and then there are a lot of big agencies involved the big holding companies like wpp and omnicom and so you know they're they're underway the content is very attractive the consumers that it, it you know the ads almost become like a new show like because you're so not used to seeing an ad on Netflix. So I think it's going to take roughly 18 months from when they started in Q4 mm -hmm. to like really truly ramp that up as they navigate kind of those relationships. But they're off to a good start on it. I think they, they have a lot of headroom. That actually creates headwinds for everyone else. If Netflix gains share in advertising, another network is going to lose share. Yep. The overall brand advertising industry is actually not growing and so they're going to not the the industry as a whole is going to have to find new customers in order to make up for increased competition all right mark great to get uh, some of your time really appreciate uh, getting your perspective your analysis mark douglas he's the president and ceo of mountain he joined us via zoom always appreciate getting his thoughts you're listening to the tape catch our live program bloomberg markets weekdays at 10 a.m eastern on bloomberg radio the TuneIn app bloomberg.com and the bloomberg business app you can also listen live on amazon alexa from our flagship new york station just say alexa play bloomberg 1130. let's switch gears to the other big uh earnings story of the day tesla uh, stocks off 6.6%, a little bit of some margin challenges uh, there for Elon Musk. Let's put it in perspective here, folks. Uh, the stock is up 120% year to date, so giving back 6% is nothing. Let's bring in Kevin Tynan. He covers all the auto industry for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us uh, via Zoom from the Princeton HQ for Bloomberg Intelligence. Kevin, what was your takeaway here? I mean, price wars, they have repercussions, don't they? Sure, yeah, and I think... Um Look, that's been the deal in the auto industry for a century plus. And I think the problem with Tesla is that this makes them look like an automaker, uh, which is probably their biggest fear. So I think what you're gonna start to hear now is all this talk of AI and full self-driving and autonomous being 
you know, the path in the future because when you look at the results and the margin specifically, you know, 18% at the gross line, 10% at the operating line, it's, those are automaker margins. <laughs> and something I was curious about too is when you're looking at Tesla's deliveries earlier this month, they did hit a record number after obviously those price cuts in the stock continue to go on a tear after it rose well above those February highs uh, last month and the next resistance level isn't until right over $300. So does this make sense when you already saw a big run like that, especially after the deliveries numbers came in better than expected that you'd see another pullback like this in the stock? Yeah, well, see what, what happens is he, Elon Musk talks about sacrificing profitability for that volume growth. Um, Obviously, you see that coming, right? This is for all automakers in the space now are going to be dealing with the same ex exact thing. So you sort of telegraph the idea that uh, they're doing this on purpose, right? We just want to maintain that 50% growth rate, which they probably won't hit. Um, you know, so so it's almost forgiven and telegraphed to the to the point of. Yeah, don't worry about margins. You know, we're going to direct your eye to this volume growth and look record deliveries for the quarter. Uh, but again, you know, all that does is make you an automaker that has no price power by giving up margin um, and puts you in the pack with pedestrian margins like everybody else. Um, so I even I thought like even if this quarter were worse in terms of margin and profitability, it would still be okay in the eyes of the market because he told you he was going to do that. Right. Not that he had control of it, but he but he telegraphed it. He told you he was going to do it. And it and it's what happened. Record deliveries in the quarter. And it's like, oh, look, it, executing right according to plan. Um, but it's really an issue now where now your margins are like everybody else's. Where do you go from here? Do you keep cutting uh, or do you stand on price and, and take the volume hit? Huh. Kevin Barry Ritholtz here. I was intrigued a couple of days ago or maybe it's already a week or two ago when tesla announced they were opening up their network of superchargers to ford and gm uh, evs how big a deal is that and is that a potential revenue stream for tesla in the future yeah look there's there's tax credits to tesla for opening that up that give that gives them some favorable treatment within uh, Inflation Reduction Act uh, to be able to do that. All the other automakers didn't have to invest in that technology. Um, I'm just not sure how much profitability there is going forward in charging. And maybe it's not an apples to apples comparison, but you know we've heard it before, nobody owns gasoline stations and there's actually no money in the pumping of the gas, right? And back in the day, those were the service bays that were connected to the gas station. Now it's the convenience store that sells lotto tickets con connected to the gasoline station. So, you know, if there were to be this explosion in demand, I'm not sure how great a margin you would be getting at the actual pump. I think the value there is that you're going to have a captive audience for however much time, 45 minutes to hours. Um, and it may be the licensing of the retail space around the the charge points that actually makes the money. I want to get your thoughts to switch things up a little bit, but also on Carvana, looking at that ticker symbol CVNA, it was up more than about 40% yesterday on that news that it will restructure debt and sell stock in this comeback bid. It's one of those sort of pandemic type of really volatile stocks that we've seen. What's your outlook here when you're looking from an earnings perspective on a stock like that? Yeah, see, that's one that um, 
you know, I, that business to me is just very focused. It's online only and it's pre-owned only. So when you compare Carvana to the other full line dealerships, you know, in AutoNation or Penske Auto Group or Group One or Lithia, you know, there's places that they can go when the used market is bad or when the new market is bad. You know, there's parts and service, there's finance and insurance. So there's a lot of revenue diversity for those companies that Carvana doesn't have. And this run up in the past couple of days, ideally, I'm struggling to find the structural difference in the company today versus before this announcement. And I'm not sure it's there. And when you look at their you know, retail run rate of unit sales, you know, it's, a, it's about a 300,000, a little bit more than 300,000 units. And they've talked about getting to 2 million and scaling. And that doesn't look like it's gonna, and that's in the ballpark of what CarMax does used only. And it doesn't look like they're gonna get there anytime soon. So all these online used only uh, vehicle retailers have really backed off the scale and growth for growth's sake to say we need to focus a little bit on margin and profitability in the interim. So, so when we see the the slew of new competitors, whether it's it's Mercedes or Hyundai, or or even uh, some of the big Chinese manufacturers, is it unrealistic for anyone who's running a first mover EV company to to expect to maintain? Um, just what's been a dominant market share? Isn't it inevitable that they have to become a, a smaller player, uh, Tesla versus the rest of the world? Yeah, look, I think that the issue is is that if there were profitability there, you know, like you said, the Mercedes, the Volkswagens, the Toyotas of the world would be there. The issue is that the, the mix shift that we've had, especially in the US the past 10 years, has been two truck from car and that was profitable on the first day. Now, automakers do need to figure out how to sell the same vehicles at higher prices because a lot of that mix shift truck from car is wrung out and it comes from technology, whether it's autonomous or electric. The problem is it's higher transaction prices, but the margins aren't as good or don't exist at all yet. So it's a very messy yep. transition at this point. Everybody's being forced uh, to go EV, but it doesn't carry the profitability yep. that your existing legacy technology does, and that's why we're slow yep. in this country. All right, Kevin, thanks so much. As always, uh, we loved uh, talking to Kevin Tynan, getting the latest on the auto biz, uh, including our good friends at Tesla. Kevin Tynan, Senior Automotive Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us from Princeton, New Jersey. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.